0: By way of pre-introduction, Psalm 46 is one of my favorite psalms, and there's a little bit of trepidation. Ted, you can tell me if you've experienced this. When you go to preach one of your favorite texts, do you have the fear to say, I really hope I do it justice? I want you guys to love this psalm as much as I do, and I want want to do it justice. And also by way of pre-introduction, am I the only one here who needs some good news? This psalm has some good news, the goodness of God. So if you have your Bibles and you would like to, please turn to Psalm 46. As you are turning there, let me pray. O Lord, you have given us your word for a light to shine upon our path. Grant us so to meditate on that word and to follow its teaching, that we may find in it the light that shines more and more until the perfect day. Lord, I am a man of unclean lips who lives among a people of unclean lips. Take away my sin that I may clearly proclaim the Lord Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. So, 505 years ago tomorrow, a German monk sparked the transformation of the Western church. He challenged to public debate those who held the authority in the visible church and what they had come to teach about God and the church, and salvation, and scripture. And in his challenging of that authority, he became an enemy of both church and state. Of course, I'm talking about Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. And while his nailing of the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg has become romanticized, and maybe even overemphasized in its importance, the remarkable experiences and the gifts of that man have not been. Due to the hatred of Luther's enemies, he spent decades in danger and in conflict. And at one point, this is one of my favorite uh, instances in church history, at one point he was kidnapped by his own friends and secretly taken to a castle so that he could be hidden away for a year at Wartburg Castle because they kept him safe. Luther loved the Psalms. And at the times when he was most afraid and he was most anxious, he made it a practice to turn to Psalm 46, saying to his best friend and student, Melanchthon, Come, Philip, let us sing the 46th. He wrote about it this way, We sing this psalm to the praise of God because God is with us and powerfully and miraculously preserves and defends his church and his word against all fanatical spirits, against the gates of hell, against the implacable hatred of the devil, and against all the assaults of the world, the flesh, and sin. This psalm became the basis for Luther's most famous hymn, the battle hymn of the Reformation, Ein Festerberg. I apologize for my German pronunciation. As we know it in English, a mighty fortress. As his pen scratched out, Those words, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. I wonder whether Luther pictured in his mind that castle on the top of a 1,300-foot hill where he had found safety and security in a world fraught with danger and turmoil. For that indeed is the picture of Psalm 46. God himself as the place of safety and security In a world surrounded by chaos and peril, from dangers natural and supernatural, physical and spiritual, personal and national. The God who protects his people is the God who refreshes and provides for the people who live in his holy city. This refuge of the weak and the troubled. This God who refreshes the weary and dwells among his own people. He is the God over countless angelic warriors. He's the one who by his own power overthrows nations and kingdoms and armies so that he alone is exalted in all the earth. No wonder this psalm was such a comfort to Martin Luther and to the early reforming church. But this song isn't just for Luther or for the sons of Korah who wrote it. Athanasius wrote, when you have fled to God for refuge and are delivered from the afflictions round about you, if you wish to give thanks to God and to recount his kindness toward you, you have Psalm 46. So as we consider it together, I pray that it will be a comfort to each of you. A psalm is unapologetically focused on God himself. And our outline will reflect this. You can find it in the back of the bulletin. It has three divisions. God, our refuge in trouble. God, our relief in his temple. And God, our redeemer out of turmoil. Kids, you'll also see the words for you to listen to in their normal place. So first, God, our refuge in trouble. Unlike many of the other psalms that we've heard, the superscription doesn't really add much of exegetical importance to the psalm. It tells us that It's of the the sons of Korah. Sons of Korah were a division of the Levites that led singing and worship, and some of whom David designated to serve as gatekeepers in the tabernacle. There are 11 psalms that are called Songs of Korah, and many of them, like this one, consider the themes of the city of God or of God as the king who brings salvation. And I read a lot of interesting speculation on what according to Alamot means. But since we're not entirely sure, we can't draw any specific conclusions from it. So how about the psalm itself? It begins, God. That's the first word. God. Not his people. Not the trouble and the danger that will be expounded. Not the emotional state of men in an unsure world. No, God is the proper focus and the beginning point. And psalm tells us, he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in distress or in trouble. The hope and the answer in this psalm comes before the psalmist even writes the problem. And as Derek Kidner points out, the Lord provides both a defensive and a positive benefit here. He not only protects as a refuge, but he provides strength. He helps his people when they are distressed. And it's not to a physical location that his people should look in times of trouble. And God does not leave us to fend for ourselves. He doesn't even call us only to rely on one another. He calls us to himself for deliverance, to find our hope and our rest in him and in Him alone. While those who love you, even those who love you the most, will eventually disappoint you, God is always there. He never fails, and His help has been proven. He's very present. His help is sure. Spurgeon writes of this verse, God is more present than friend or relative could be, Yea, more nearly present than even the trouble itself. And above all other troubles, we have this one. Our sin that places us at enmity with our maker. And this is the beauty of the gospel. The greatest danger that we face is the judgment of God for our sin against him. And even there, he himself became our refuge through the life, death, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We even take refuge from him in him. When Augustine preached this passage, he said, among all tribulations of the human soul is no greater tribulation than the consciousness of sin, and even in this, the Lord has become a helper by forgiving sin. And the church father Basil exhorts us, one thing you must flee, sin, and one refuge from evil must be sought. God, And how we react when we sin, it reflects and it demonstrates where our trust truly lies. Here's what I mean. If we try to self-justify or to hide our sin or think we need to fix things ourselves or clean ourselves up before coming to the Lord then we are denying with our actions the truth we profess with our lips that Jesus is our only hope for salvation. If we truly believe that he is our refuge, even from sin, then the very first response when we have transgressed God's law ought to be to confess our sins to him, to plead for his mercy, and to take him at his word that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So whether you are a Christian or you have not professed faith in Christ, don't put yourself at risk by allowing your sin to keep you from God. No, flee to him. Make him your refuge. Trust in him alone, and you will see that he is sufficient to forgive even the greatest of sins. So he's a refuge and strength, he's very present in the truth of his strength, his presence and his help. It creates a confidence in his people. The psalm continues in verses 2 and 3, therefore we will not fear, though the earth change and the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains shake at its swelling, Selah. So just sit there for a second. Think about the audacity of this statement that the psalmist makes. He says, The confidence that God's people can have can remain firm even if they start seeing mountains disappear. As so often happens when I do sermon prep, I read this verse and then I went down the Google rabbit hole. This time I was reading about landslides. The largest landslide we know occurred in Wyoming before it was inhabited. An area roughly the size of Benton County slid off the Hart Mountain area, and the mountain itself moved 60 miles, traveling about 100 miles an hour. You can go and you can find pictures of this mountain kind of in the middle of the plains. It's pretty fantastic. Of course, the most famous landslide that was observed in real time was after the explosion at Mount St. Helens in 1980. That landslide was the size of Bentonville. And when all was said and done, the mountain was a thousand feet shorter. And our psalmist says, in the face of that kind of catastrophe, God's people can have confidence in him. Of course, this is a psalm, this is a poem. So he's not only speaking of physical mountains, but he's speaking metaphorically. He's speaking of those things that you are so sure. What is more sure than a mountain? What are those things in your life that you are so sure about? Those things that you can found, found your life on, those relationships, that security that you have, your health, your job, your income, your marriage, your kids. The psalmist says you can trust God if physical mountains disappear and you can trust God in any spiritual or emotional or psychological one. He is that sure of a help. But notice, the psalmist doesn't say that trouble won't come. It's what we saw two weeks ago in Psalm 73. Even more clearly last week in Psalm 88. God's people are not exempt from life in a fallen world. Chris Austin puts it this way. He does not prevent tribulations coming. But he is at hand when they come, making us tried and tested, providing greater encouragement from the assistance than the pain from the tribulations. The assistance he provides us with, you see, is not simply as much as the nature of the troubles requires, but much more. God's help is even more than the troubles that we face. So, since undoubtedly, there are many in this room who are facing trials are facing difficulties let me ask you what is it that you fear what are the things that are so sure that are disappearing what is shaking your confidence what breaks your peace have you taken it to the lord your refuge have you come to him in prayer and sought his protection and his help his provision and strength He calls his children to trust in him. And he promises to care for us. He gives us promises like Isaiah 43 where he declares, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, you're going to go through it. I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. And the Lord Jesus expands this promise. In John 14, he tells his disciples, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And this is why Paul can tell Timothy that the Lord has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self control. In the Lord Jesus, we have peace that passes all understanding in all circumstances. But sometimes that idea is misunderstood. I've heard some preachers insinuate that any feeling of fear or anxiety is inherently sinful. That is not what this psalm says. Calvin's commentary is really helpful on this point. He says, When, however, the sacred poet says, We will not fear, he's not to be understood as meaning that the minds of the godly are exempt from all solicitude or fear, as if they were destitute of feeling. For there is great difference between insensibility and the confidence of faith. Calvin says, he only shows that whatever may happen, they are not overwhelmed with terror, but rather gather strength and courage sufficient to allay all fear. So when you fear, and you will, you must return again and again to the Lord. Ask for his strength and assurance. The confidence of God's people is that he will be their ultimate hope and protection. Even when the waters of life that we cannot control roar, even when the mountains shake, we do not despair. So Matthew Henry writes, let those be troubled at the troubling of waters who build their confidence on a floating foundation, but let not those be alarmed who are led to the rock and there find firm footing. The Lord is a refuge, a strength, and a help to his people. But he is not so to everyone. This is only true for those who have placed their trust in him. But those who do find something even more. God is also God our relief in his temple. Psalm continues in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in her midst. She will not be shaken. He helps her at the turning of the morning. Nations have made an uproar. Kingdoms have been shaken. He has given a call. The earth melts away. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, is with us. Our stronghold is the God of Jacob. Selah. So while the very mountains in the earth will be shaken, the psalmist says the city of God will not be. In this city, there are no turbulent waters threatening to wash away the foundations. Instead, there's a river, a river whose streams reach to every corner of the city for its refreshment and its joy. The Lord's people in this city are led beside still waters, and their souls are restored. But there's nothing special in and of the city itself. What sets it apart is the Lord is there with his people. It's his tabernacle. It's his temple. And you've you've been well taught. You should know what I'm going to say next. Where is the city where the Lord dwells with his people? It is his church, the temple of God, Prior to the incarnation of Christ, the the people of God were constituted as the nation of Israel with a geographical city, a capital, Jerusalem, where the temple of God was. But now, Christ resides with his people by his spirit wherever they are. The church is the temple of God. Both individual Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit and collectively as one people, they are his temple. So this is how God can be present with his people. He dwells within them. Christian, there is nowhere you can go away from God's loving presence. So that is how he truly is a very present help. Of course, the city described here, Sure, should remind us of another couple places in Scripture. First, Genesis 2 says this, beginning at verse 8. "'The Lord God planted a garden in the east, in Eden, "'and there he put the man whom he had formed. "'And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up "'every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. "'The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, "'and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. "'A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, "'and there it divided and became four rivers.' The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Badelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The city of God in our psalm holds echoes of Eden where the four streams flowed out to bring life and flourishing to the surrounding lands. But then if you flip from the beginning of the book to the end, in Revelation, we read this about the heavenly city. We heard it in our New Testament reading earlier. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His, names will be, his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. And they need no, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their lights, And they will reign forever and ever. What's interesting about Jerusalem, if you know this, is it's one of the few ancient cities that actually didn't have a river running through it. It's not built on a river, it's built on a mountain. And so as we think about this psalm and thinking about the city of God, we're thinking, like I said, metaphorically, we're thinking of the city of God as his people, where God dwells with his people, the church. And so what is this river in the middle of the church now? God himself, the Spirit, bringing all the benefits of God in his life to us. If you think about how much we emphasize the means of grace at this church, and and we focus on very few things, but we focus on the simple means of grace, why do we do that? Because those are the ways that God refreshes his people. There are lots of good things that we could do in the world. There are lots of things that you as individuals should do in the world. But we as a church, we should be a place of refreshment. We should be like that city that is described at the end. We should be a place where healing is available, where life is available. The city of God now ought to be a foreshadow of that perfect city to come. The unshaken and unshakable city where God dwells with his people. Where each morning discovers his new mercies as he helps his people. Just as his great victory over our greatest enemy, death, came when Christ rose from the grave at the break of day on Easter morning. So as we think about what brings refreshment to God's people, what is that river? It's the ministry God has given to the church, through word and sacrament, through prayer, through Christian fellowship and encouragement. And the city of God, the church of God, here in our psalm, it's put in contrast to the nations and the kingdoms of man. Just like the mountains and the seas, the psalmist says, the nations roar and the kingdoms shake. And just as the voice of the Lord called creation into being, By a word from him, he can melt the earth. So don't tell me that God's word is irrelevant. The kingdoms and the nations of man shake. Things are unsure. Society is changing. Economics are unsure. The political and international and cultural orders... Are just as tenuous today as they were when the psalmist was writing. We face danger in this world just like every other person that has ever walked the earth. But in the same way, in the psalm that God's people stood unafraid in the face of natural disaster in the mountains, they also stand firm when the kingdoms rise and fall, when war is threatened, and when social and political upheaval surround them. They do not fear because they know that Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, the God who controls legions of angels, that is the God who is with them to be their stronghold. He is the God who covenanted with Jacob and who keeps covenant promises. So if we, as we think of ourselves as that city of God, I want to highlight two different applications to come out of this, this middle stanza of the Psalm. First, I think this passage had to be in the mind of the author of Hebrews when he wrote this in chapter twelve. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. when the God whose voice shakes the earth calls out to us, calling us to worship, calling us to trust in him, calling us to obey his commands, we dare not refuse. We must submit to our Lord. We must flee the nations and the kingdoms of the earth with their danger and their peril to his unshakable city. And in his temple, offer him worship with reverence and awe. And for the second application, as we live in the same kind of world as the sons of Korah, a tenuous world where the nations and the kingdoms shake. I want to read something a little longer than I normally do. In in light of how this passage highlights that God's city is not shaken by the political machinations of man, In light of what I said about the emphasis on the church's ministry being the simple means of grace, in light of what you may see on the news every day, and in light of the onslaught that you will undoubtedly hear for the next week or so about how the church must be involved in this political cause or that one, or how Christians must vote this way or that way, J. Gresham Machen's closing words from his book, Christianity and Liberalism, are so fitting. He says this at the end of his book. Written a hundred years ago, by the way. There must be somewhere where groups of redeemed men and women can gather together humbly in the name of Christ to give thanks to him for his unspeakable gift and to worship the Father through him. Such groups alone can satisfy the needs of the soul. At the present time, there is one longing of the human heart which is often forgotten. It is the deep, pathetic longing of the Christian for fellowship with his brethren. One hears much, it is true, about Christian union and harmony and cooperation, but the union that is meant is often a union with the world against the Lord, or at best a forced union of machinery and tyrannical committees. How different is the true unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Alas, he writes, too often one finds only the turmoil of the world in the churches. The preacher comes forward, not out of a secret place of meditation and power, not with the authority of God's word permeating his message, not with human wisdom pushed far into the background by the glory of the cross, cross, but with human opinions about the social problems of the hour or easy solutions of the vast problem of sin, such as the sermon. Thus the warfare of the world has entered even to the house of God. And sad indeed is the heart of man who has come seeking peace. And then the last paragraph. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race? to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place, Machen says, then that is the house of God and that the gate of heaven. And from under the threshold of that house will go forth a river that will revive a weary world. Does that not sound like the city of God? In the temple of God in our psalm? Oh, may Christ church be that kind of refuge for weary sinners. Because God is in our midst. The final stanza of the psalm moves from God's care for his people. And the view changes to his interaction with the world. So as we look at these closing verses, we see God, our redeemer, out of turmoil. To grant even more confidence to his audience, the psalmist calls them to come and behold the Lord in battle. He writes, Come, see the works of Yahweh, the one who has put desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I am exalted in the nations. I am exalted in the earth. And he sums it up by repeating his refrain. Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts, is with us. Our stronghold is the God of Jacob. Selah. The last section here, it begins with a call to come see the judgment of God. Yes, he is the one who brings peace. The one who ends all the wars. The one who destroys the instruments of war but he does so through decisive and complete victory, the psalm says. The psalmist here almost sounds like those minor prophets that the men's group on Friday morning has spent months studying. When the Lord of hosts acts on earth, he leaves his enemies utterly destroyed. And and this victory and this desolation probably brings to mind the judgment of that final day, and it should that is where the end of all wars ultimately will be. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We must first remember that the greatest desolation worked on the earth was the crucifixion of the Lord of glory where the Son of God was laid waste by the wrath of God and by His suffering He laid waste to all of His enemies. The cross of Christ is the great desolation of God that ends all wars. and We see how that desolation is carried forward in surprising ways. Charles Spurgeon hits the nail on the head when he observes, Does God not make great desolations when he makes that man that counted himself a most religious man to, con- to confess himself not sufficient for one good thought? As it was with Paul, does he not make wars to cease when he turns the heart of a persecutor earnestly to seek peace with God and man, yea, with his very enemies? Does he not break the bow and all weapons of war asunder, and that in all the earth, when he proclaims peace to all that are far off and near, professor and profane, Jew and Gentile? God makes war to cease in the proclamation of the gospel. As His spirit brings His word to bear in the world. But because all human conflict is the result of sin, one way or another, either through converting sinners or defeating them in different ways and ultimately at that final judgment, the Lord will ultimately restore peace to His creation. One commentator writes, Peace is made two ways. First, by taking up the differences and reconciling the spirits of men. Secondly, by breaking the power and taking away all provisions of war from men. The Lord makes peace by both these ways or by either of them. So this is the God that ends all war. And in light of his unrivaled power, the Lord speaks directly to the whole earth in verse 10 calling them to be still. And I read it that way because this is not a coffee cup verse calling us to quiet contemplation in our hearts. This is the command of the sovereign Lord of the universe demanding that his petty creatures cease their striving and stand at attention, recognizing him as the supreme king and the only being deserving glory. He will be exalted over all else, he says. Here's Spurgeon again. Either by terror or love, God will subdue all hearts to himself. The whole round earth shall yet reflect the light of his majesty. All the more because of the sin and obstinacy and pride of man shall God be glorified when grace reigns unto eternal life in all corners of the world. This God, the only exalted one, the one who will at last stand victorious over all his and our foes, he is the Lord of hosts who is with his people, the God of Jacob, our stronghold. They didn't even wonder why Luther took so much comfort in Psalm 46. The message of Psalm 46, Derek Kidner writes, is that our true security is in God, not in God, plus anything else. So as we close, the question is, have you made him your refuge? Or are you still striving against him? Have you made him your only refuge? Or are you still hedging your bets, trusting God plus something else for your security? The call is to heed his word. Stop your fighting against him now. Abandon your other hopes. Come to him through faith in Christ, and he will be your stronghold and not your enemy. And Christians, our final application of this passage comes from Matthew Henry. He says this. Let us pray for the speedy approach of these glorious days and in silent submission let us worship and trust in our almighty sovereign. Let all believers triumph in this, that the Lord of hosts, the God of Jacob, has been, is, and will be with us and will be our refuge. Mark this. Take the comfort. And say, if God be for us, who can be against us? With this, through life and in death, let us answer every fear. In the love of the Father, through the work of his Son, and by the power of his Spirit, may it be so of us. Let's pray. Our God, you are our only hope, our only refuge, but you are a perfect one. Lord, for those who are here needing fears calmed by your Spirit, work peace in their hearts. For those that are striving against you, break the power of our feeble bows and spears. Bring us in submission and faith to you. For those who are weary, give us rest. And we thank you that in the Lord Jesus we have all of these things. We thank you for your love and your mercy, our only hope. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.